Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast. I'm your host, Frank Giles, and we're joined again by Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Michael, welcome. All right, thank you, Frank. Great, great. We missed you last month. I know you were you were on the road traveling a lot, so uh, good to catch back up here, back up here in April. Yeah, thanks, Frank. And sorry we missed each other. It's uh, like everybody's been a busy time of year, and getting our schedules to match up was kind of difficult. But but glad to join you this time. Absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of busy, we we've, we've had a couple big citrus events uh, that are now in the books. We the Citrus Institute was it early in April in Avon Park, and, and that was well attended, and growers seemed to be in pretty good spirits there. Um, I know you spoke there. What what was your impression? Yeah, uh, we had a good turnout. Uh, this year at Institute, we had moved to a smaller room, but uh, we filled it up, and it was good to see everybody out there. It was a good event, uh, a lot of good presentations from the faculty um, from IFAS, and um, you know the, the citrus agents always do a great job of putting that together, and so we're glad to see everybody come out and uh, be able to interact and, and hear some of the latest research updates uh, from our faculty. Yep, that was a good, good event. Um, and then the, the following week, we had the uh, Florida Grower Citrus Show and uh, changed things up a little bit this year, and that, that really worked out well, had a really good attendance, and uh, I just felt like good energy among the growers in that, in that uh, tailgate setup that we had. Uh, what did you think of the event? It actually worked out a lot better than I thought, to be honest. Uh, I think we we're all kind of wondering, you know, one with the weather, if we were going to end up getting rained on, but or even just how the setup was going to work. But I think most everybody I talked to, from the growers and the, uh, the vendors who were there, everybody talked really positive about it. It was a good event. Um, we had a great turnout. Uh, obviously, you know, we had both the citrus and the vegetable section. It was the vegetables happening over there at the USDA facility, but um by and by and large i mean i think it was a really good success and hopefully we can continue doing that in the future over there because i think it was a really good way to hold that meeting yeah it just kind of showcases research from both the ifas and usda facilities right there that are neighbors and um i i agree when we were looking at the weather forecast on wednesday the day before the event it was a little bit a little bit nerve-wracking but the skies broke and we had uh pretty blue skies for the event so it, it all worked out and uh and just to echo what you said the the that that whole tailgate environment was just kind of a different way of doing it and was was fun for the vendors as well as the attendees so i think think that was great and also a quick shout out to all the vendors who actually brought food and served food to the attendees um at tailgate style and i think we had a about more than half of the vendors participated in some way with food. And there was pretty good, pretty good treats out there. Uh, oh, it was there. good food. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, good deal. And education wise, I know, you know, there, you know, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're sensing it too. There seems to be a little bit of optimism among growers, uh, being hopeful that these trunk injection therapies are going to, bear some fruit for us uh, going forward. So I've, I picked that up at the Institute and at the Citrus Show, just a little bit of a sense of um, some optimism growing out there. Yeah, I think so. Um, uh, you know, we've continued to add new tools to the toolbox, you know, these new therapies. 
you know, for the past several years, we've been talking about gibberlic acid and, and now, you know, 2,4-D. Um, add to the options, you know, the, the trunk injections with the um, oxytetracycline that people are, are trying out for themselves. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that you know, are helping, I guess, uh, increase the grower optimism about what we can do and how we can try to continue to live and manage with HLB. And um, so with that in mind, um, one of the programs, I talked about this at Institute just a little bit, um, but one of the things we're trying to do uh, is, is roll out a new program now. This is um, from Dr. Tripti Bashish. It's the Canopy Assist Program. And what this program aims to do is really help growers assess, okay, you're trying something new. You're putting out with a chip acid or these trunk injections. What's important to know is, you know, if you're doing these, is it making a, a is it benefiting you? Are you getting the return on investment it costs to, to do those therapies? And so um, there's going to be more information coming out about this, this new Canopy Assist Program. Uh, Dr. Pashish has already talked about it at some meetings, some squeezer meetings around the state. And we're going to be putting out an educational video in the next several weeks that kind of details this and you know, how growers can do it. But the general gist of this is that um, it's a way that growers can use um, basically uh, cell phones and things they have currently available to them to um, uh, submit pictures over time of, of their grove and trees in their grove. And that goes back to IFAS. And we use a computer system to then, you know, um, you go in and assess the tree health. And when you do that over time, we can actually give some pretty good data on are those trees improving. Um, it's based on canopy density and ultimately be able to, to predict what the yields are going to be. Are you going to see an increase in yields over time? So um, that's just a way that growers, it's not going to be very labor intensive. It's not going to cost a lot of money, like when you're paying for drones to come fly your, your grove. But it's just something that growers can do to um, give them a sense of if, if these new therapies they're trying out, are they, are they paying off? Are they going to uh, help them increase the health of those trees? And I think it's important because if you look back at where we've been this past year, um, so many of us lost you know, 60%, 70% of our crop or more from the hurricanes. And so uh, hopefully everybody's going to look better this year, but it would be good to get some data showing that um, we are seeing those improvements in the overall tree health. Um, that is going to lead to increased yields over time. So um, that's what we're going to be rolling out. I just wanted folks to be aware of that and look for that information. As, we, as it comes available, we'll make sure people know about where they can find uh, the information for this Canopy Assist program. But it's just another way that in IFAS we're trying to help growers, uh, you know, have all the information to make informed decisions uh, about how they're managing their groves moving forward. Yep, and so basically the grower just take a, take a snap a photo with their smartphone and uh, that's how they that's how they'll get the imagery of the canopies uh, to measure that uh, tree health. Yeah, and it's 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 actually getting under the canopy a little bit. I mean, the one thing that a grower would probably have to buy is going to be a selfie stick. Um, but you really simplistic here. I think you're just going around the four sides of the tree and shooting up underneath the tree. And then there's going to be a website where you just scan, you just basically upload the the images to the website. And the IFAS researchers take it from there, doing all the analysis and then generating a report that will be sent back to the growers. So, um, you know, and the, and the point is to not do it just one time, but you, you know, pick those same trees and do it, you know, time and again throughout the year. And that, that data will show what's happening to those trees over time. And uh, so, again, it's pretty low input, low cost, not a lot of time involved in this on the side of the grower, just to get some more information to help make decisions. Great. Well, as you mentioned, all of these new therapies and, and the, 
plant growth regulators and different things that have come on in the past couple of years, it, it, it would be good to have that sort of benchmark, you know, definitive measure of tree health versus just an objective kind of looking at the tree every now and then. So I think that'll be a handy tool for growers. Yeah, absolutely. And, and hopefully, hopefully folks will be able to use that and, and we'll continue to refine that over time. But um, again, uh, appreciate all the work that our, our scientists are doing to, to be creative and come up with some new ways to, to help growers. Cause right now, you know, it's, it's a little bit at a time. Um, it's, everything's incremental. Um, we don't have the ultimate solution to HLB right now, but we're continuing to improve how we uh, get information in the hands of growers so they can make decisions uh, right now and keeping, keeping our groves productive. Great. Well, with that, Michael, we'll let you go. It was good, good catching up with you, and we'll check in next month. All right. Thank you, Frank. We're here on location today for the All In for Citrus podcast at the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford, and I'm joined by the Citrus Plant Improvement Team. If I said that correctly, y'all can correct me, but I'm here with John Chater, Jude Grosser, and Fred Gemitter. Welcome, guys. Thanks. Glad to be talking with you today, Frank. Hello. Thanks for having us. Great to have you. So we're going to be talking citrus breeding uh, in this episode of the podcast, and we got the guys to to really get into some details on that. And what we're talking about today, obviously, the breeding efforts for for a good number of years now has been HLB tolerance, as it should be, as the industry has fought that, but also close behind that has been citrus quality. It's always been citrus quality. Yield and quality is a very important uh, part of the equation well before HLB ever come along. And over the past few years, the quality equation has certainly become more uh, part of the discussion as, as it has continued to decline. So we just wanted to talk a little bit about that today of about ways we could raise the bar when it comes to quality along with that HLB tolerance. So I guess to begin with, let's just talk a little bit about the situation at hand and some of the efforts you guys have been doing in terms of, you know, we kind of know the HLB tolerance part of it, but let's talk a little bit about some of the quality aspects of what the research you guys have been doing. So we, we can start by um, getting people to start thinking a little bit outside of the box and the example that I, that I like to bring up is something that just happened a few weeks ago. Um, IFAS holds a really dynamic event every year in the Champions Club uh, room at Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, and they invited all these gourmet chefs to come in, but they, they try to um, make all sorts of uh, foods and desserts and drinks using all things that were produced from IFAS uh, research, so all the different commodities of IFAS research, and then they invite all these dignitaries to come in and, and have a social and taste everything. And uh, we were invited to participate, and we had a, um, a booth where we served uh, three juices, and we used one of our most HLB-tolerant varieties that we have that was developed by Dr. Gemitter sitting here called the Sugar Bell. And a lot of people have already, are already familiar with Sugar Bell, but uh, what we did was uh, we made a juice that was 50% pasteurized Sugar Bell that was harvested from six-year-old field trees that are right up the street from the center here. Uh, so the fruit was moderately compromised, but it did still had around a 12 bricks, which is, is, which is pretty good. Um, so we made a 50-50 blend with uh, NFC that we, from one of the three major brands that we bought at Publix. 
and uh, we also had a, a 90-10 blend that was 90% of store-bought NFC and 10% Sugar Bell, and we had straight-up uh, NFC from from the store. And so we we let people taste it blindly, and we asked them to, to vote for their favorite one, A, B, or C, and the results were really telling because I believe it was 57 people voted for the 50-50 blend, and uh, I think it was 16 for the... 90-10 blend and, and only four for the straight up. So this shows you that um, some of these hybrids can have real potential to improve improve the quality. And that's just scratching the surface because we have a lot of other hybrids in the in the breeding program that have just as good of um, tolerance as Sugar Bell, but we'll have higher bricks and, and much higher color that can, can really enhance even at 10% can really enhance the quality of, of a juice, which is 10% is the legal limit of what we're allowed to blend for juice in the United States. I understand that in the European Union, they, they won't tolerate any any blending at all, but at least for our market, which is pretty big, um, this could be a, a real asset to, to take, take advantage of. Great. And Fred, you, you had talked about uh, Sugar Bell and it's kind of figuring out its lanes over the years um, and, and now seeing some potential in the juice. Just talk a little bit about that. Well, originally we released Sugar Bell as a, a fresh fruit variety because it, it looked like Mineola, the Honey Bell, um, but it matured about six weeks earlier than Honey Bell. So our gift fruit packers could have that kind of a product to go into the Christmas market as opposed to picking it immature early honeybells for the Christmas gift market. Uh, and it had some greater tolerance of alternaria, which is a, a disease that growers had to control substantially on Mineola. Um, so we, we put it out there for all those reasons, right around the time that HLB broke loose in Florida, and except for one grower, um, no one wanted to plant it because it was a new variety and they had heard from the pathologists that we're all going to be dead in five years. And so... Um, one grower planted it, and he and his family made really good money at it for many years as a gift fruit and fresh market variety. Um, we began to look at it as um, HLB became more and more serious, as and, and there was more production, more growers were planting it. We wanted to see if we could use it in in juice, in the juice business. So we pasteurized it, which is a requirement. Most of the mandarins you pasteurize, they, uh, they develop off flavors. We found Sugar Bell doesn't have that problem at all, so we can blend it. And so we just started working on it in that direction. I understand a lot of growers have given up on Sugar Bell. Um, they, were, they were hoping it to be a fresh fruit variety. I know a lot of blocks have been pushed in the last two years. We have a block of trees here uh, in our city block grove. Um, and they're all infected, as Gene said. They're about six years old. They've, they've, they're all infected with liverbacter. They all have HLB. Uh, but the fruit we were pulling off, some of it came off for fresh market. Um, the majority, though, however, we juiced, and we found between ten and twelve bricks, which is still higher than statewide what the average has been. Um, we've pasteurized it, and it's pretty good quality juice. And it was the the blend that Jude was talking about that we work with at, at the Flavors of Florida. We've done this several times in the past. Dr. Yu Wong has also done a lot of blending with Sugar Bell and found, uh, yeah, that it's it's a good addition to the product. And also the, the Sugar Bell, you, you guys are using it in the breeding program too as a parent for some other varieties. Talk a little bit about how that's being worked into the system. 
we learned also very on very early on that sugar bell, which has this high level of tolerance to this disease, passes it on to its offspring. And so both Jude and I have been making crosses using sugar bell as, as a breeding line for, for many years. Um, and we have several hybrids that have come out that likewise show high levels of tolerance, uh, but different fruit characteristics, earlier, later maturity, and, and so on. So it's, it's been a useful parent, and Jude's also used it even for rootstock breeding. Um, so it, it transmits that characteristic to many of its progeny. Mm -hmm. And just talk a little bit about the rootstock program. So the rootstock program is complicated because, um, of course, we're trying... We're trying to find rootstocks that are highly tolerant or resistant to the sea loss bacteria that causes the disease. But the problem is you have to screen things as a grafted tree because there are a lot of rootstock genotypes that if you grow them ungrafted, they have no problem with the disease whatsoever. But they have to have the ability to transmit that to a grafted commercial sign, which all, all of them are susceptible uh, to, to have an effect. And so... Um, it's very difficult to screen, um, but we've, we've screened through thousands and um, we're finding some that have a, a strong impact on reducing the disease. Uh, we have now found some that um, do not allow any replication of the pathogen in the root systems and we don't know for sure what that means to, the, to a grafted tree yet, but it looks promising in the trees, that, the few trees that, that we have in the field. Um, and so some of the promising rootstock selections that we're working with have really good rootstock pedigree, so you can predict that they're going to be a good rootstock. And so you can control the tree size, you can get early bearing, you can push up the bricks and the young fruit, which is going to be a critical thing when we replant millions of trees in the state. And they, they can have the other diseases and insect resistance qualities um, that we need. But we also have other sets of germplasm um, uh, and Dr. Gramitter can comment on one population he's working with. Um, but we have hybrids with this citrus selection called Citrus Latipus that's very tolerant, and we made a lot of hybrids with pomelo and with clementines and different things, and a lot of them are showing very, very good tolerance, but we don't know how this genetics will perform as, um, as rootstock because it's never been tested before, but some of these plants are, are really vigorous, and we expect to find some that will for sure make the trees very tolerant of the disease and probably do really well as a, as a rootstock, but it's a lot more research that needs to be done. So, some of these hybrids that you've mentioned, these lot of these hybrids, actually we have not been able to find them infected with Liberobacter after six years in the field in the Indian River in a very hot location. Hmm. Um, we're trying to understand what that means. We're also using those as, as breeding parents to introgress this potential resistance um, into things that have commercial potential. Right, that's pretty exciting. It's, something's going on there, so obviously something worth worth keeping an eye on and uh, studying further. Yeah, we're, we're digging real deeply into it. <laughs> great, great. Well, we talked a little bit about Sugar Bell and the quality aspect and digging a little bit deeper in that. Talk about some of the other newer varieties that are out there that y'all are excited about, whether they be sweet orange or sweet orange-like that you think could move the quality needle? Well, we, we can talk about all three categories because we have new selections that are actually true sweet oranges that can be promising. And then we have some things that are sweet orange-like um, that if if we showed them to you as a consumer, you, you would 
you would say it was a sweet orange without even batting an eye. You would say it's a really good sweet orange. Yeah. And, and then we have other things that are, they don't look exactly like a sweet orange, but they have a juice set that's really rich flavored, orange-like flavor, but will have much higher bricks and much higher color that could be really useful for, for blending even at the 10% the legal limit that, that we have. I'll comment on some of the new sweet oranges that are, that are true sweet oranges because uh, I'm really deep into that. Uh, Hamlin has always been the first half of our industry and um, the growers like it because it yields like crazy and they can pick the fruit before there's the threat of a freeze. But it's always had poor color and mediocre flavor and so it always has to be blended um, with the later season juice, usually Valencia, to, to make a grade A product because it doesn't stand on its own as a grade A product. But greening has affected Hamlin worse than the other oranges, so you have more fruit drop, the quality of the juice has gone down significantly. And, and so you have this dilemma, what are we going to grow the first half of the year? So we've been f focusing on that with, with oranges, and we found uh, about 10 clones of Vernia, which normally matures in mid-January with Valencia quality, but we have about 10 clones that we're finding that mature the first week of December and we found one of those that's making higher bricks than the others that we're pretty excited about. It looks like it has decent tolerance better than than Hamlin for sure. And then we, we've been working a lot with the OLL oranges. Um, you've probably heard about Ori and Louise Lee uh, that have facilitated a lot of this research. It's been done on their property. Still a lot of it's going on there. Uh, but we found some, that found some clones of the OOLs that are maturing the first part of January, and a lot of the Hamlin right now is being harvested in, actually most of the Hamlin's being harvested in January. It used to be December, but now it's been shifted because they're, the processors are trying to wait, thinking that the quality is going to come up a little bit if they wait longer, but it, it really hasn't panned out that way. And, and so we've got new clones of OOLs that look more tolerant and earlier. Uh, but this year, we're finding out that we actually have a season-long problem because it, the target for NFC juice is usually about 11 and a half to 12 bricks and about a 15 ratio. And so if you got Hamlin's coming in at nine, or early season oranges, whatever they are, coming in at nine or 10 bricks, you'd have to blend with something with higher than 12 to get it you know, up to 11 and a half to 12, and that was usually the late season Valencia. So this year, all the Valencias are coming in between nine and 10. So what are you gonna blend with to get what you need? It's not even there. So we've also been now selecting uh, clones of both Valencia and OOLs that even with greening for many years, they're producing 12, 13 bricks. And we're finding some that have repeated for this and we're moving those through the, through the pipeline. So that's pretty exciting, I think. Exactly. Just kind of, you've got to have that certain level to bring it up to a thing. I know I was at a grower pa panel discussion uh, earlier this week and, and, some of the growers were talking about the new varieties they were per putting in, and Vernia was, you know, mentioned, and some of the OLLs were also mentioned. So that's encouraging to hear that, you know, growers are reaching out there, going to try some different things. John, I know you're you're working with growers pretty closely. Just talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing and and their receptiveness to to try some of these new things or what it what it needs to happen to get them to to try some of these newer varieties to maybe help bring that quality equation up 
Well, I've been meeting with um, growers of all kinds, growers that are multi-generational, that have been in for, for three to five generations, uh, sweet orange growers. I've, I've been meeting with growers that are uh, primarily interested in fresh market, growers who are brand new, um, just purchased um, land and are interested in planting new material or resetting what is already there. Um, uh, working with caretakers, for example, one here in, in Lake Alfred um, uh, planted uh, uh, many um, N1332 hamlins, which um, is, a, is a Soma clone that was produced by the Gemitter Grocer Program and um, appears to have much higher uh, health in the field. Um, so I'm uh, uh, working uh, on uh, replicated trials and working with growers who are planting these either in trials or as resets to see how these hold up against HLB. Um, the health of these trees is, is phenomenal. Um, and I'd like to point out that not every H, uh, N1332 Hamlin tree is um, in, in a full um, canopy health, but uh, more often than not, I'll see solid blocks of, of this particular selection um, with good caretaking being quite healthy. Also working with um, OLL series, um, doing whole tree harvests, uh, putting them through the packing line and through juice processing here at the pilot plant to figure um, uh, optimal harvest dates and root stock effects on yield and juice quality. Um, additionally, with um, some of these um, uh, selections that Dr. Grosser and Dr. Gemitter mentioned earlier, um, CRDF has sponsored a statewide drone project in which I am flying drones over all of these materials and um, um, N1332, um, um, this, these um, OLL uh, selections, Sugar Bell, and some of these Orange Lake hybrid selections are uh, popping out uh, per drone, drone metrics as being the healthiest trees in the field. And so um, next steps would be to take a closer look at these. I've only been here for 14 months, but uh, there are many leads from this breeding program, from this, um, from this material and this germplasm that these two have developed over the past few decades that I believe are promising for the industry and I, I plan on um, uh, acquiring the resources needed to, to evaluate those. Very good. And just to elaborate a little bit more on the drone, uh, just talk a little bit about how that imagery works to evaluate, I'm assuming, the tree health. Right. So these drones, they'll, they'll give um, images of the trees and they'll give hyperspectral um, values um, associated with the plant health and vigor of these trees. They'll tell you the canopy volume, the square footage of the footprint of that tree in the grove. Um, we can do comparisons in these replicated trials to determine which trees are healthier than others per these drone metrics which are taken very high up in, into the air, uh, hundreds of feet into the air. So it's more of a bird's eye snapshot of the health of these trees. And then um, we go out into the grove uh, with GPS to locate these trees and to verify that they are at the health status that the drone has um, um, determined. And if they, are, if they are a winner, then we um, are reporting back to CRDF. We have 91 individual plantings or trials or groves or germplasm sites that have been covered and we are um, uh, working to compile an initial report for CRDF so they know which, which selections are um, uh, uh, perhaps useful and also to provide inventories to these uh, stakeholders so they know uh, what is out there, what has been planted out there in the hopes to um, uh, receive support from the stakeholders to move this breeding program forward. Well, at the panel discussion I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the growers 
on that panel made the comment that he had the N1332 and he had set what he thought was the best crop ever this past season and he was using jabrilic acid so you know he was thinking maybe that was helping some but unfortunately the hurricane came through and kind of kind of stripped the, most of that fruit away so it was hard to draw a conclusion and you know staying on that point for a little bit how difficult has it been for you guys you know going back to you know with HLB, HLB complicates everything, but going back to 2017, Irma, now we've had these hurricanes last year. How does that complicate the evaluation of these new varieties that you, you are looking at? I'd say we're no different than any grower that's out there. Um, our breeding program has suffered from HLB just like the growers have. When the hurricanes come through and, and things get smacked around, we get smacked around too. Um, we're, we're subject to all the same laws of nature as, as the guys and ladies out in the industry are. So it, it, it's, it's a challenge. Um, no way around it. And it goes beyond that. I mean, we've, we've had these kind of obstacles our entire careers because, you know, we had the canker statewide eradication program. We actually lost 125 acres of our research germplasm that, that we, we couldn't stop at, at any level. So, I mean, it's like watching 10, 10 years of your life's work being burnt up in one, in one day. And now we lose, when we have trials with some collaborators, um, they may just decide that that property is worth five times more for real estate. And all of a sudden you get a notice that the grove's gonna be gone in a month. And that, that's happened multiple times, and so we've, we've been dealing with these sorts of things. But it's obviously worse now because HLB is affecting everything, and the hurricane did, did compromise our ability to get good data from a number of, of trials this year. Yeah, I think the point is we're all in the same trenches, us and the growers. Right. We've always yeah. been in the boat together. So, so we were going to talk, talk a little bit about orange-like hybrids, too, and... Um, Fred has one, my favorite one that I've seen so far is, he can tell you more about 1859, uh, but also the discussion about what the, the legal definition of an orange is internationally and, and the efforts to try to expand that a little bit based on genomics work, which Fred can also talk about in better detail than I can. <laughs> yeah. So 1859, it's, it's not a glamorous name. It wasn't a very good year. Um, <laughs> But it's a, it's a pretty darn good um, sweet orange-like hybrid. This is, uh, also happens to be a cross of sugar bell that we made more than 20 years ago. Um, and we planted it out with, with thousands of other seedlings. It was an individual seedling in a, in a block nearby. And after about 20 years, 15 of which included HLB smashing everything else in the block, we went through and we looked, and we could have done it with a drone, but we were able to do it with our own eyes as well. Uh, and we saw this this tree that was, you know, had a full canopy, and it was loaded with nice sized fruit that were coming in at 14 bricks in the middle of January. This is data just from two Januarys ago. Um, you know, after all that those years of exposure. Um, it, it starts to mature in November, and it'll hang on the tree into the end of January. Um, it, and it gets beautiful red-orange color on the outside, deep orange color on the inside. People who have tasted it have described it as like, yeah, that's, that's a very 
trop this orange has tropical notes. There's, there's something about this orange. But they say this, this orange, they look at it and they think it's an orange. When we first started showing it to some of the growers, particularly some who are both in the fresh and the juice business, they saw a huge potential for this as a fresh market variety, fresh orange variety, because consumers would look and say, pretty orange, uh, but also for its, its potential for juice. And so that's something that's, that's had me excited. We've, we've propagated from that original tree. We have it out into a number of different plantings and trials to see how it's doing. And so far, nearly everywhere we have it, it's, it's performing really well. Um, but it's a matter of time, right? Like all of this, we, we need some time. We need some validation of its ability to, to continue to thrive. Um, but because it looks like an orange, Jude talked about genomics. And just, just to touch briefly on that, you know, we, we've done a lot globally with citrus genomics. And we've come to learn that sweet orange, all the sweet oranges, you know, they're all mutants from each other. It's, it's like if we had several Frank Giles and, you know, one was a little bit different from the other, but you're all basically Frank. Um, that's what the oranges are. And we have a legal definition that says that's what is sweet orange. In the U.S., we can blend up to 10% non-sweet orange stuff, but in the EU, you can't do that. And so there's been an interest because our breeding program and the USDA breeding program, we found several of these kinds of hybrids that look and behave like sweet oranges, but they have much higher levels of, of apparent tolerance to HLB. So why can't we change the definition of what it means to be a sweet orange and not go to some silly old classification system, a taxonomic classification system that's outdated, that genomic science has said, this is, this is, this is not reality, folks. Um, and look at these things that would taste like an orange, look like an orange, smell like an orange, act like an orange, but have these higher levels. So there's been interest, you know, um, the Florida Citrus Processors Association, and uh, Ms. Carlson has, has done a lot of work trying to push this concept through. There's international efforts to, to look at what it is to be classified as a sweet orange now. Um, there's a lot of talk in the EU um, about this, and more and more people seem to be lining up and getting on board with this idea that we can broaden the classification of what it means to be a sweet orange, um, more based on the chemistry and the flavor, uh, the nature of the product itself, and not an old antiquated definition. Yeah, and a definition that came about before HLB upended the industry, right? Yeah, and, and one, frankly, that, that our industry wanted to put into place because at that time it made a lot of sense to, to protect this thing that we call orange juice. And, uh, you know, we built it, and so theoretically we can change it. But again, it needs international recognition because orange juice is, is an international commodity. And if we're, if we're going to be in the business internationally, we need to make it work that way. Right, right. Well, it's encouraging to hear that those conversations are going going on. You know, if I'm a grower and I've got a block that I'm ready to put some new trees in, um, what would be a handful of newer varieties that you would make a pitch to, if you're, especially from the juice perspective, that you would say, hey, put out there, you've talked about some of them already, but maybe maybe give me a couple, three varieties that you think they should really consider? Well, for me, uh, 
I have my own biases, but for sweet oranges, um, the mid-season uh, orange Valquarius, which is the name derived from a Valencia that matures during the Aquarius period, so it's six <laughs> six weeks or so earlier than standard Valencia, but it's a Valencia. Um, so the I, I like it better than its competition, which is Vernia, because the fruit's much more attractive for the fresh market, so the juice quality of Vernia and Valquarius are, are very similar and comparable, and the harvest dates are almost overlapping. But so you have this option for the fresh market because it makes a much more attractive orange. The shape's better and the external color is better than what you have for Vernia. And then for the late season oranges, um, we have a new clone of Valencia called B965, which the trees grow off fast. They're precocious bearing and the fruit quality is really good. And, and it, it's out, it out yielded 31 other late season clones in um, a trial we had at Conserve too that we took data. For seven years uh, and then we have the OLLs um, which are phenomenal quality um, better than they, they beat Valencia just about every taste test that, that we've ever had either tire beat it in every taste and there's three of those now available commercially OLL4, OLL8 and OLL20 which was actually released because uh, uh, one of our major orange juice companies found something special about the flavor um, we're trying to study that and figure out what's causing the enhanced flavor, but it definitely has uh, just super flavor, and so that's another option. Very good, Brent. Super flavor and super color in, in the OLL20. Well, I know I've, I've participated in some of the taste test panels, and I know that OLL color of that juice, just looking at it, is a, it's an attractive uh, color, dark uh, color, so... It's orange juice, not yellow juice. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're going for, right? That's the name, orange juice. Yeah. Well, I guess to wrap it up, uh, you know, from just talk communicating to growers out there, you know, about the work you're doing and about your focus on on them. Uh, just talk talk a little bit about your commitment to 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 the grower and and what you're trying to deliver to them and through all these years of research that you guys have done. Wow, that's a almost a deeply personal question. Personal question, Frank. Um, that Jude and I are both past retirement age, and there might be some guys out there who say, "All right, it's time for you to get out of the way." That we're still here, I think, is a testament to the fact that we have devoted our entire life's career to the Florida citrus industry and trying to make things better. And we do that through genetics. That's been our game. Um, we think that we've, we've found things that are improvements. It's not always easy to convince growers that they are. And hopefully young John Chater here is going to help some of that with um, you know, future trials uh, where we can positively demonstrate that we've made advances and that these are, are real and they can impact our, our industry. But we're still here and uh, still active, quite active. I, I feel the same way. Um, I, I've had orange juice almost every day of my life. I'll bet you there's probably not 10, 10 days where I haven't had orange juice in the morning. And I, I want my children and grandchildren and everybody else, it, it's a human you know, connection to, to be able to have that opportunity because I think it's just a wonderful uh, product, not only delicious, but there's so many health health things in there. and so. You know, we spent our careers learning how to do all, you know, emerging all these biotechnologies in with conventional breeding, and uh, and I think we have the tools that 
can can solve this this problem. And so um, I, I'm not going to quit as long as I feel like I can can contribute to, to the solution. And I think it's close close at hand. So we'll just keep pushing and hope for the best. <laughs> well, John, I know, like you say, you're you're here just over a year, and you're you'll be carrying this out to the growers, so to speak. So uh, just talk a little bit about your plans going forward and that interaction with the grower community. Right. So um, I, I feel my role is to um, evaluate the uh, material that the, the great uh, great numbers of individuals and rootstock scions and their combinations that these two have created over over the last several years, several um, last few decades, and so there is a backlog of material that that I wish to get into trial and determine which selections are uh, most uh, profitable and useful for the growers. Um, coming here from California, um, they have a, a pomegranate, or excuse me, a citrus breeding program in in uh, California that's uh, uh, world renowned. And and uh, talking to the breeders over there talking to the scientists when I told them about um, this, this job that I was uh, signing on for. They told me that uh, Fred and Jude have, have the, the best breeding program for citrus in the world and that they are, they're some of the most pro- prolific breeders pioneering biotechnology and, and genomics to the 21st century. And so my, my, my hope is that I can do a good job in demonstrating that there there is material in this in this uh, germplasm that can well serve the Florida the Florida growers and uh, bring uh, juice production back to levels um, where we were previously. Well, that's great. You know, the the greatest breeding program in the world and the greatest place to grow citrus. So that's pretty pretty good combination. So appreciate you guys joining the po- podcast today and keep up the good work. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much Thank for the opportunity. Thank you, Frank. Really appreciate the chance to talk. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.